no matter what we are doing, no matter how much or how little, if our heart is not in the right place and we don't remember where our roots are as a church, then we may make a lot of noise, but that noise is going to die out really quickly. And so I entitle our talk today of going back to our roots and who are we as a church and why do we do what we do? And the why is Jesus. Jesus is at the center of everything that we do. Or as the song goes, Jesus is at the center of it all. That's a great Christmas song. If you haven't listened to it, highly recommend it. It's an incredible song, but it is so true because Jesus truly is at the center. He is the reason why we are doing what we are doing who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do and is continuing to do through the Spirit, through us, is the reason why we have groups. It's the reason why we meet here on a Sunday morning. It's the reason why we live our lives the way we live, not because we feel like we have to, because Jesus shows this is the way that we get to live. And so and this is just a personal question for you all this morning for every single one of us, is you have to ask the question of why. It's really good to reassess every now and again the reason why we do things. And so why Jesus? What about Jesus to you impacts you the most? What about Jesus draws you in? What is it about Jesus that has you sitting here this morning? And maybe you don't know that yet, and that's totally okay. This is not, I don't want you to shout your answers at me. Um, but I do encourage you, write that question down somewhere, whether it be in your phone or in a notebook. And really be chewing on that and reflecting on that this week of, why Jesus? Why Jesus? Think about stories in your life. And those mountaintop moments to where Jesus was so clear, it completely changed your perspective. And what I love about those moments is that they're often very random. I know for me, like my calling, so to say, of going into ministry, I was going into my senior year of high school and I was eating barbecue at a youth camp in Nashville. And I just felt a push of, you need to go and pursue this. And I was like, oh, Okay, and it really caught me off guard, but it's over those little simple things. But it's good to look back to those mountaintop moments because it, it's so clear again because sometimes, and most of the time, life is really foggy. Life is really hard. It's not very clear. And so sometimes going back to those moments are our saving grace and will get us through a really tough time. But for me, and, and as I've, if you've heard me speak before, you know I'm a little bit of a Bible nerd. I love looking at the little intricacies and details that we find in Scripture. And so this morning, I want to take you through a few stories that have truly made an impact on me the most. And we're going to look at stories that involve a desert. We're going to look at a story, and all these are about Jesus story about Jesus when he goes to a church or a synagogue. It's basically their church back then when Jesus was walking the earth. We're going to talk about tents. And we're going to talk about some fishing as well. 
And so we're going to be kind of all over the place. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 4 or log into your Bible app. We're going to be starting off here in Luke this morning and then later jumping over to John. And a little bit of context before we jump into this particular story. I want you to see with this one is that Jesus knows. I know that's, you probably already know that. But Jesus truly knows and understands. Not just like a reading our minds kind of thing, but as we'll come to see here in this first story in um, Luke chapter 4, uh, chapter 4 of Luke's gospel, that Jesus loves us so much that he wanted to experience what we as human beings experience. And so without further ado, a little bit of context to this story is this is in Luke's gospel, the very start of Jesus's ministry. And so we see in the previous chapter, we have John the Baptist, which is Jesus's cousin. And John's whole calling, the whole reason he did what he did, he wasn't just a wild man who lived in the wilderness, right? He was fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy of preparing the way for the king, preparing the way for Jesus, preparing the hearts and minds of the people of Israel so when Jesus shows up, they don't miss him. And so in the midst of John doing all of this amazing work around the Jordan River, then his cousin walks up and Jesus gets baptized as an example to us of the start of something new. And if you remember the story, if you don't, what happens is Jesus goes under and as he comes up, a dove, the Spirit of God, comes down upon him from heaven. And then the voice of God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus has this incredible mountaintop moment, right? And then, immediately after this, I think the Spirit does a little bit something unexpected. And so if you want to go ahead, we're going to start at verse 1. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. He was just got baptized, he just started his ministry, and the first thing that he does is he goes out into the middle of nowhere, led by the Spirit. And Jesus ate nothing at all at that time and became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him, to, took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said. Because they are mine to give anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will just worship me. And Jesus replied, The scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you. And they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. 
And Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. And when the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. And so there's a lot going on here. And if you grew up in church like I did, normally you focus on the temptations themselves, right? Because that in, you know, that's a really big chunk to meditate on to begin with, right? I mean, how many of us have had a temptation or a testing that is that strong when we are in that position where we are all by ourselves, where we feel alone? Probably a lot of us, right? But something that really, really just makes Jesus real for me is the fact that he did this. Is the fact that Jesus emptied himself in a way to where he was hungry. Have you ever thought about that? The, the son of God who was there when the universe was created? Who whole existence up to that point was in relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in heaven? A place where we desperately want to be? And because Jesus and God loved us so much, he became hungry. Jesus knows what it feels like to go without food and to hunger. It's something so little and so simple but so profound to me. That his love is that strong that he would go hungry that he would be lonely. He was by himself for a month with no food, no counsel, no one to sit there with him, but he did. Jesus was tested. He was tempted. The Son of God, again, the one who is in the garden, the one who made the trees that are outside right now in the ocean that we love and enjoy, was tempted. It's not in your notes, but in Hebrews 4, the, the writer there talks about how, you know, our high priest is someone who we can connect with. Jesus is someone who understands us because Jesus knows. Jesus emptied himself in order to personally know our experiences as human beings. Right? And then you would think right after this, everything would be fine and dandy. Well, if you keep on reading, and we won't go too much into it, but after this, he goes to Nazareth. He goes to his hometown, and he goes to church or their synagogue. So when you read in the Bible and you read about the Sabbath and you read about synagogues, it's basically their Sunday church, right? It's basically their Sunday church. And so Jesus goes, and at this time, he was very well known as a teacher and a miracle worker. And so he goes in and he reads this scripture that just rubs everyone the wrong way to the point where they try to throw him off a cliff. And so Jesus, in this short amount of time, in this one chapter, has experienced a hunger that I know I have never experienced before in my life. Loneliness, temptation, and rejection by the people he grew up with. The people who walked in and out of, his of Joseph's carpentry shop. 
right? And so I know that a lot of conversations that we may have with hurting people, we normally hear the phrase of, you will never understand. And there's a lot of truth to that because each and every person's story is unique. But when it comes to Jesus, Jesus knows. Jesus is able to have empathy for us to a level that it's hard for me to sometimes even grapple with and understand. A couple of weeks ago, our prayer team, we had a, a seminar. I'm kind of going over, you know, what, what, who our team is and what we're like looking forward to do. What are our goals? How do we sit with people who are hurting? And, and I showed a video. And it was a, a video that the voiceover was done by uh, Brene Brown, if you know her. She is a great author, a great speaker. Um, and she's talking about empathy. And the video, it was like a little picture video. It had a little cartoon with animals, and it was funny and silly. And it was, but it was also really powerful. And that the part of the video when she starts to talk about empathy, the, the illustrator draws a pit. And the grieving character is down in the bottom of that pit, and it's dark, and you can't see anything. And what she says empathy is, is getting a ladder, climbing down into that hole, and sitting with them, and being with them. That is what Jesus has done for us. That is the power of Jesus. And it doesn't seem miraculous. It doesn't seem like some of his other miracles. But for me, the things that make it raw and real and so impactful to me are those little things like that. It's just the fact that Jesus knows. It gives a whole new perspective for me with all of the miracles. Because he's not just coming in, not understanding, but knowing that he can fix it. He's coming in with a deep understanding of, I have seen and known you before you were even born, before you were a thought. And I know exactly what you need. And so if that's what you need to hear this morning is that Jesus knows the next story we're going to look at, it's, I like to title it, Jesus Steps on Toes. And this is one for me, as someone who has really had to grow with dealing with conflict, this is one that I have struggled with throughout my life. Of, Okay, how can I be like Jesus, someone who is loving, but also someone who doesn't back down when it matters most? And so when I was um, reading through this, I was like, okay, what, what story captures this for me? What, which story in, in the Gospels does this, does this really shine through when Jesus acts? And so this one, particularly, it comes in two chapters over in Luke chapter 6. And so if you want to go ahead and turn over there, it's going to be starting at verse 11. And again, just a little bit of context. In this story, Jesus He's going, it's on the Sabbath day, which is basically a Saturday, which for Jews, again, is like Sunday morning church. And so Jesus was often invited to these things because he was known as a well-renowned teacher or a prophet. And so Jesus comes in and he's a part of it. He's on stage. Um, the way they would normally do church, which I'm kind of glad we don't do church now. I think it'd be kind of crazy if we did allow this. But they would have the teacher or whoever else was reading the scripture up on stage and then they would have all the other qualified people, so like 
think about like other preachers and ministry interns and all sorts of people who are qualified to participate would sit up front and they would have a conversation about the passage that was read. And so the whole service was an open conversation for the most part. But the really wild thing is the way that the Pharisees had came up with these because a lot of what the Pharisees do and a lot of what we read are the grievances and the disagreements that Jesus has with the the religious leaders at the time or that they set things up in a way that made it harder for people to get to God rather than the other way around, right? So when Jesus is having these debates with them, he's like, you guys are making up rules that are excluding people. These rules, like in this example of the Sabbath, which is a day of rest, which goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. On the seventh day of creation, God rested. It was supposed to be a day of rest. It was made for people, right? But what happened is just tradition after tradition comes in until it gets to where on the Sabbath day, you have all the people who have everything right or have it all together in the front row. And if you were a woman, if you were a child, or in this story's particular case, if you had any type of physical deformity or sickness, you're in the back and you're sitting down and you get to be there, but you don't get to say anything. I can't imagine going into a church like that. Some of you have been in churches like that before, where you walk in and because you're not in the inner circle, you don't feel welcome. You feel like I'm not supposed to be here, right? You have no pull, you have no say. The whole gig is there for the inner circle. So in a sense, that's what's going on here. And Jesus is at the synagogue. And and when we see in verse 11, he sees a particular man in the crowd. Starting at verse 11, or starting at verse 6, I'm sorry. On another Sabbath day, a man with a deformed right hand was in the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. The teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with a deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. So the man came forward. Then Jesus said to his critics, I have a question for you. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is it a day to save life or destroy it? And he looked around at them one by one, and they said to them, and then he said to the man, Hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored. And at the end, his enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and began to discuss what to do with him. And so again, just like the last passage, there's a lot to unpack there, right? But I want us to focus on the man with the deformed hand. The fact that Jesus saw him, had compassion on him. Jesus knew this man. This man may not have known Jesus, but Jesus knew him. And he knew what he needed. Jesus knew the backstory that is not included in Scripture, but Jesus knew it. There's some commentaries that say that this man was a stonemason. And so there's a possibility that this could have happened on the job, and it wasn't his fault. 
He just happened, an accident happened, stone fell on his hand, and now it's paralyzed. And now he can't work. How is he going to provide for his family? And then the one place where this man is supposed to find hope, the one place this man is supposed to feel restored and encouraged, he is sitting in the back and he can't say anything. He can't get any help. And Jesus sees that. And Jesus knows that. And he says, come down front. And I want us to notice this. Before Jesus did any healing at all, Jesus included this man in what was going on. Before he healed him, before he changed his circumstance, he says, I want you to come down front with all of these other smart people, all these other rabbis and Pharisees and religious leaders and other words that just don't really matter, other than the fact that they thought they were better than everyone else and they thought that they knew God. But they didn't recognize that God was on stage right in front of them. Jesus brings them down front and says, what are we doing here, guys? What are we doing? And Jesus is challenging the very way that things are. Why? Because he wants us to see the world through his eyes. And as someone, I, I grew up in a fairly conservative church, right? Um, a lot of my story is I grew up in church. Um, church is a really big part of my life. My dad was a deacon for like 30 years. My granddad was a preacher. Um, I think he's still preaching sometimes. I have no idea. Um, but so church is a really big part of my life, and I've seen what it looks like in church leadership. And oftentimes what happens is we get so bogged down on things that don't matter. We try to get the right lighting. We try to get the right this and that, and everything has to be this way. And we're so focused on those things. There are hurting, grieving, broken people walking through doors of churches today that will go unheard. And that breaks my heart. Because of what they look like, because of what they're wearing, because of who they are perceived to be. And it riles me up, y'all, because I've seen it. I've been a part of I've been on leadership teams where that was a thing. I grew up in a church where a woman could not speak in front of a man. And it still irks me to this day. Because it's, because guys, we're so worried about things sometimes that just are missing the point. And Jesus is like, this person is hurting. This person needs me. This person needs love. They need to know they are created in my image. And sometimes we need that wake-up call. And as we see here, sometimes it doesn't really, just like in the previous story, it sometimes rubs us the wrong way. But I want us to see here that no matter what, and I think this is what would help us as a church as we continue to look forward and help you if you are a follower of Jesus or if this is something that you're just starting to dip your toes in, is when you look at someone, just assume there is way more to the story. There's way more to what meets the eye. And when you start there, we become open 
to Jesus, we become open to seeing the world through the eyes of Jesus. And that takes patience and that takes sometimes a lot of time, but let me tell you, it is worth it. And so then the third story here, this isn't a very long story, but it shows that Jesus comes close to us. So we're done with Luke. If you want to flip over to the Gospel of John, that's where we're going to be for the rest of this morning. And by rest of this morning, I don't mean until lunchtime, I promise. We're going to be at the very beginning of John's Gospel here in John chapter 1. And it's, this is honestly these 14 verses, which we're only going to read verse 14. But if you ever need to pick me up, or you ever just need to like sit and be with God, I highly recommend reading these verses. John writes this beautifully. It's this basically remix of Genesis chapter 1 of God creating the world, but he's putting Jesus into the mix here. And then we come to verse 14, which is at the very end of this little soliloquy at the beginning of this book. And so the word became human or became flesh and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. I want you to hold on to the the phrase, he made his home among us. In other translations, that's dwelt. I think I like that word a little bit better. That Jesus the word of God came and dwelt with us. And if you look a little bit deeper, and if you're like me and you like to do that, um, with the New Testament being written in Greek, oftentimes a really cool thing about that language is there's always something a little bit deeper to go. And that's how this passage is here, is that this passage here, the word dwelt or made his home among us, literally means to set up one's tabernacle or tent. If you don't know what a tabernacle is, it's basically just a big tent. And if you go all the way back to the book of Exodus, one of my favorite books, the very end of Exodus, when we see, if you know the story, or if you don't know the story, it goes like this. Israel's in bondage in Egypt. God redeems them, saves them from that bondage through Moses. They then go out into the wilderness They have some good times. They have a lot of not-so-good times, right? And at this point in the story, God is up on this high mountain, and Israel's down below it, and they've done some pretty messed-up stuff up to that point. But even after all of that, after Moses, he gets the Ten Commandments, this covenant with with his people, and he comes down, and they're doing exactly what they're not supposed to do. They're worshiping other idols, And so Moses has to go back up and still talking with God and this whole mess. That at the end of all of that, regardless, one of the very last verses in the book of Exodus was God, or the smoke, or the presence of God came off of the mountain and went down into the camp. God's presence came down down to be with his people in the midst of all of that mess that was going on. Jesus does that again here. Jesus 
wanted to know what it is like to be human, being fully God and fully man, right? It's a mystery that we may never really figure out until we go see Jesus. But regardless, Jesus wanted to know and emptied himself in order to get on our level. Jesus saw what was hindering us from being with God and being in God's presence. And he challenged the status quo in order for us to see the world through his eyes so we can start moving in that direction. But before he could do any of that, he had to move into our neighborhood. And that's exactly what he did. Is Jesus seeing our condition? He had compassion on us and moved in right next door. And something that's so encouraging to me in this is that Jesus is always less than a block away. He's right there with us. He knows. He loves us. He has compassion for us. And he is right next door. And I think what's so cool about this is that I think Jesus knows and is showing us that the best way to make change is through relationships. If we as a church, we want to make a big impact on Pensacola, if you as a Jesus follower, or you wanting to know more about Jesus this morning, if this is what you want to do, you can have the best ministry in the world with all the resources, but if you don't have relationships with people, it's going to fall flat. And I'm preaching to myself this morning, y'all, is that relationships are hard. They're complex. They're messy. You can't really have a a giant game plan and it go from point A to point B exactly how you like it in relationship. It is a lifelong process. And so as we look forward to what God has in store for us this year, we have to remember it starts with relationship. And just like with our Savior and our God moving into our midst next door, sometimes we have to do that when we're wanting to make an impact. Is we go to those uncomfortable parts of town and we post up. We're there. We're not just there once a month. We're present in their lives. I, I feel like we do that with Milk and Honey, and I love that ministry so much of how that two different demographics of people that live in two different parts of town can come together and be in relationship. It's not about helping necessarily, but it's about getting to know. Because if you know someone, if you truly know someone, you will know what they need and when they need it. But that's also the challenge, right? But regardless of all of that, what it says even louder is that God wants to be close to you. God wants to be close to you. The creator of the universe wants to be in a personal, intimate relationship with each one of us. If that's not the most powerful thing that you've heard in the last week, I don't know what is. There's so many things that we listen to, but I feel like if we remembered this, it wouldn't make things easier, but I feel like it'd make things a little bit more meaningful. Is that we worship and follow a God who isn't in this far off place, but wants to draw near, right? Like we talked about reckless love. 
the links that God will go through, the hoops that he's jumped through. If you read this book, y'all, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it's a love story. It's a bunch of hoops and hills that God has to jump through and tunnels he has to go under in order to get us back with him like it was at the beginning. It's not just a book of rules. It's not a book of stories. It is a true love story of God wanting to be with us. And as we close this morning, I think our journey starts somewhere. All of our journey starts somewhere. Our journey as a church started in the marina. And we're so blessed to have everything that God has put in forward for us here. But I feel like this last story here, and this is going to be in John 21, if you want to go ahead and turn to that. Is that this story kind of encapsulates all of what we have talked about. The other passages of scripture that we've read through this morning. This is the one, y'all, that really hits home for me. And this is a story about Peter. If you don't know who Peter is, he was one of the 12 disciples. He was one of the 12 guys that Jesus called to really follow him closely. On top of that, Peter was one of the three. He was one of the three closest friends out of that 12 to be close to Jesus. And I love Peter's story because it makes it so real for me and what it looks like to follow Jesus is that Peter was never qualified. He was a fisherman. He was never qualified to follow someone like Jesus who was a rabbi, who was a teacher. But Jesus saw something in Peter that Peter didn't see in himself. And after a miraculous miracle going fishing, which we'll get to, Peter drops everything and follows him. Peter sees Jesus do miracle after miracle. He was there in the synagogue, in the church building, when the man's hand got healed. He was there when Jesus walked on water. He was there when, in, I believe it's Matthew 17 or 18, when he, John, and James go up on the mountain. They go up on this mountain, and Jesus just, like, transforms. You see Jesus with all of his glory. And they, none of the other disciples saw this. Peter was in places that we could only dream to be when it comes to having a relationship with Jesus. And yet, as the story goes, when the night came for Jesus to be arrested, and Jesus is taken away, Peter denies Jesus three times. And Jesus knew this. He told them this over dinner just a little bit earlier before that. Where Peter told Jesus, I'll never leave you. And Jesus, I feel like, and this is not in scripture, but this is what I imagine, is that he looks at him with some heavy eyes and a heavy heart and says, Pete, you're going you're gonna to deny me three times. And you'll know it when you hear the rooster crow. And that's exactly what he does. He gets so worked up at trying to get people to understand that he was not with Jesus, maybe for the sake of his own life, that Peter uses, and some scholars say, curse words 
to really put his point across. Of, I am not associated with this guy at all. And so Peter had a lot of baggage. And so three, come day three, after one of his closest friends was murdered, here comes Mary Magdalene saying, he's risen, he's alive. And Peter doesn't believe it. He goes and sees for himself and the tomb is empty. And so he and the rest of the disciples are just flat out confused. And so he turns to his, some of the closest guys that he's got to know over the past three years and says, guys, I think I'm going to go fishing. And what I love about this, and this is, I feel like, our mission as a church is they say, we'll come with you. They don't let Pete go out in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee by himself. They go with him and they fish. And so they fish all night. And something interesting about how they fished back then, they didn't have, I, I'm not a fisherman, so I, I don't know what people use nowadays, but they didn't have computers, they didn't have trackers, they didn't have fancy rods or bait. What they did is they would go out in the evening, and they have oil lanterns on the side of their boats. And what those would do is they would attract bugs to the oil lanterns, and so the fish, which were mainly tilapia, would come up to the surface, and then they would take their nets and get them, right? That's, that's how they fished. And so these 11 guys are out here in the middle of the night fishing from dusk until dawn, nothing. Don't get a single fish, period. And to Peter's surprise, he, he sees out on the shore, there seems to be a guy standing out there. Like, what, what is this dude standing here at five in the morning on the beach? This doesn't make any sense. And then he hears him trying to say something. Hey, have you caught any fish? And he replies, no. We've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. And then the man says, throw your nets to the right side of the boat. You'll catch some. Which if you were a fisherman back then, you're like, this dude's crazy. It's the light out. The fish aren't going to come up and bite. It has to be dark. Our oil lamps aren't going to work if it's, if it's in the morning. But he's like, all right, whatever. And he throws his net over to the right side, and lo and behold, there's so much fish, the boat nearly sinks. And if we go all the way back to the start of Peter's journey, Jesus did the same miracle the first time they met. When Jesus was teaching on the shores and he sees Peter again coming in, not catching anything, he says, hey, let me, let me use your boat. And they go out and he finishes teaching and the same thing happens. He says, go, go throw your nets on the other side, you'll catch some fish. All of this is running through Peter's mind as well as everything that he just did 10 days before when Jesus was arrested. I feel like Peter had every right to jump out of that boat and swim the other way. But what does he do? He does his best Michael Phelps impersonation from the 2008 Beijing Olympics, and he swims the shore. He says, forget you guys. I'm going to go see him. 
because he realizes it's Jesus. And he gets to shore, and Jesus made a fire and breakfast. And so they're all reminiscing and enjoying their time with Jesus. And then we get to verse 15, when after breakfast was completed. And after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know that I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question again. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep. A third time, Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked this question a third time, and he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. And so again, there's a whole lot to unpack here, but if you, when you're reading this and you read love, you know, in our language, love is just one word. We can say, I love my wife and I love nachos. And we, there's, there's a bit of interpretation that has to go on there, right? But in the Greek, there was a hierarchy. There was different words for different kinds of love. And so ones that we see the most here in scriptures, we have eros, which is like a romantic love. We have phileo, which is like a brotherly love, or as I've heard it said before, a Facebook kind of love. It's very linear. It could mean a little bit. It could mean a lot. But it's like a, a buddy type of love. And then we have agapeo, or you might have heard the word agape before. And that means like a sacrificial love, like a love you have for your kids. Like, I love them more than I love myself. And of all the Greek words for love, that is at the top. That is at the top of the Greek love hierarchy. And so when we read it in this way here, there's such an amazing detail that God, when he spoke through John and inspired John to write this, and to share this story that I think is absolutely incredible is that Jesus, the first time he asked them, he says, Peter, do you agapeo me? Do you love me more than anything in the world? And Peter says, Jesus, you know that I phileo you. I love you like a brother. You know what I did. You know what I did 10 days ago. I love you like a brother. So Jesus looks at him again and says, Simon, son of John, that's his IRS name. It's his legal name. Simon, son of John, do you agapeo me? Do you love me more than anything? And Peter again says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I have nothing else to give. You know what I did to you 10 days ago. I don't deserve that kind of love. I can't give you that love because I didn't give you that love then. It's all I have. 
And then Jesus, the third time, says, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? What Jesus does here is he lowers the love bar for Peter. He knows Peter can't give him that type of love right then. But I think what Jesus is communicating here is that, Peter, it's not about your capacity for love. It's about my compassion for you. I've always loved you, Peter. I've never not loved you. Y'all, this is the God that we are worshiping. Someone who will be with us as Jesus meets us right where we are. He doesn't say you have to fill out this list and then you can come to me. He doesn't say, well, you have to go through three months of classes and and then you have to do this and then you can be my disciple and then you'll be loved. Jesus loves you right where you're sitting right now. Jesus is calling to be close to you right here in this place. And that is a cause for celebration. That is a cause to be open to it. Where else in this world are we going to get that? I don't think anywhere. And so as we move forward as a church, we're doing a lot of great things. And we're going to do a lot more great things because I really believe in what we have going here. But just like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, which if you've been to any wedding, you've heard this. It's the love chapter. He's like, you can have everything right. You can know scripture front and back. You could have a doctorate in it. You could... You can be the greatest speaker in the world. You can be the best salesman in the world. You can be whatever. But without love, it is nothing. It doesn't matter. Because without love, we're only doing it for ourselves and we're building our own kingdoms that are here today and that will be gone tomorrow. But when we decide to take what Jesus is doing, not only will it last forever, But it's something that is here in this life and it's there in the next. It's the way that we're supposed to be, guys. It's the way that we're supposed to live is in communion with God. And so as we close this morning, as the worship team comes back up, if you've been here any amount of time, you've noticed that we'll have people positioned up here and they're here to be with you. They're here to pray with you. They're here to listen with you. And I know that's intimidating to come down front in front of everyone. You may not feel like, well, I haven't been going through that much. I really don't need prayer. We all need prayer. And so if you have any response this morning, if you just want to come up here closer and sing with us, We would love that because that is a response. Us worshiping and us singing is a response to the love that God is offering us. And so as we hold on to these truths, my encouragement to you is to live them out and not to wait till you leave these doors to do so. Do it right here. 
you're not alone. We're right here with you. Would you stand as we go to our God in prayer? God who knows us, sees us, and loves us. We acknowledge your presence here this morning. If there are heavy hearts here in this assembly today, I pray that you release them. I pray that you soften those hearts here this morning, God, of the people who feel like they've done too much, they don't deserve your love. They feel like they're so far gone that there's no way that you could save them. There's no way that you could understand or be with them. God, may they feel your presence this morning. May they forget that lie. And may that lie be replaced with the truth of that you're always here with us. We are just a moment away from a moment with you that's deeper than any moment we've ever experienced before. I pray that we live like that. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for meeting us where we are. Thank you for emptying yourself so you can know us on a deeper level. Thank you for challenging our status quos and putting us out of our comfort zone and seeing the world through your eyes. Thank you for living among us. And I pray as we think this week of stories and ways that you have been at work through our lives, may we be taken back to those moments. May we relive those moments as if they're happening right then. And may you speak to us in those places, God. May we be a church that is so grateful, full of gratitude for what you have done for us, that we know no amount of charisma or enthusiasm could ever replace gratitude. That we live grateful lives. We cling close to you, God, as you cling close to us. And may that infect everything around us. Jesus, we love you so much. And it's in your name that we pray this. Amen.